Today I have a message that I can't do justice to, even if I had more time to prepare. It's talking about the characteristics of God and who God is, so to get us thinking that way, I began to think, do we really know who God is? Do we really understand that God's characteristics, that God's nature, it doesn't change? It's not like you encounter one side of God's nature and then somewhere later down the line you encounter another side of God's nature. God's nature is His nature. He holds together things like love and holiness. And in our day and time, especially in my own life, as I look at my life, I really like God's love. But there are often times in life I don't really like God's holiness. Is anybody there with me? You like to talk about the fact that God is a a steadfast giver of love and compassion and mercy and grace. But then when we move to God's holiness and we think about our own fallen nature, our own struggle with sin, our own activities, we begin to wonder, do I focus too much on God's love and not enough on God's holiness? If you're like me, you probably do. But when we look at God's word, we always see in balance the understanding of God's love and God's holiness, and nowhere does that become clearer than on the cross with Jesus Christ, and that God demonstrated His love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, and in that eternal, unmatchless, unending love that God offered to us also cost Him the death of His Son because His justice and His perfection as a judge declared a righteous payment for sin that we couldn't pay. And so as we look at God's love, Let us never separate from God's love, God's holiness. And when we look at God's holiness, let us never separate from God's holiness, God's love. Do you know Him? Do you really know God? Have you walked with Him? If you read His Word, His revelation of Himself, today I want to look at one of the most important passages in all of Scripture because it is quoted so repeatedly. So open up your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 34. We're going to look at verses 5 through 9 and Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 through 9. As you're turning there, let me set your minds to ask you the question of, do you really know God? As I thought about this question, I thought about my own life, I thought about my own self, it's what we tend to do, and I started thinking about people that try to act like they know me, but they don't really know me. Does anybody have somebody that tries to act like they know you, but they don't really know you, and you kind of understand that? Anybody out there, you got a hand up? Am I the only one in the room? All right, no, there are a few others. All right, here's how I know somebody doesn't know me. When they call the house, and they ask at the house, and they say, is Jerry there? Now, that might sound odd to you. But my full legal name is Jerry Thomas White. So when somebody just looks it up, or when somebody doesn't know me, they assume I go by my first name. How many of you go by your first name out there? Okay. How many of you are cursed to go by your middle name like I am? So that in er- there's two of us. I heard another one over there. There's three. Murray Murdoch. I didn't realize you went by your middle name, Dr. Murdoch. Some in the back. Uh, raise your hands again because we're going to have special prayer for all of you. All right. Because in every classroom, you walk into the classroom, the teacher reads the role or whatever, and it automatically comes out your first name, right? And then everybody looks at you. I thought your name was so-and-so, as though you've been deceiving them all these years. I didn't do it, all right? Mom and dad said, call me Thomas. It wasn't my thing. That, my dad's name is Jerry, so they called me Thomas, and so that's, that's what it is. So if somebody calls my house and they say, is Jerry there? Do you know what I say to them? No. 
He's not. That's my dad. He lives in South Carolina. He's not here because they don't know me and they're trying to sell me something, right? I don't have time for that anyway. So the answer is no, he's not here. Now, sometimes on email or other conversations, somebody will automatically shorten your name to pretend they know you better than they really know you. And so they'll come up to me and they'll say, hey, Tom, how are you doing? Now, that doesn't work either. Let me tell you why. My father-in-law's name is Tom. When I got married, my wife said, you are Thomas from this day forward, period. And so it's Thomas. It's not Tom. It's not Tommy. I'm convinced Tommy Hilfiger will grow up one day and become Thomas, but it's not Tommy. It's Thomas. If somebody walks up to me and they call me Jerry or they call me Tom, they don't know who I am. They don't really know me. You know, there are sometimes we talk about God, the Father, and I wonder, do we really know him? There are some times where we give an indication on one side or the other, and Chip Ingram talked about this some, but we give an indication on one side or the other of this loving God that has no holiness and no justice and no wrath, and he's just this big, mushy, warm Barney. I mean, he's just the I love you, you love me, we're a happy family, and there's absolutely no indication of justice or righteousness there. And then there are other times we get over here and we get out our big Bible swords and we begin chopping people up with the holiness and the legalism and the justice of God. And you wonder, is there any love represented in this? Exodus chapter 34, I think, puts this together well. Now, the context of Exodus chapter 34 teaches us two things before we read it. First, that God is the God of second chances. Because the context of our passage today is where God tells Moses to cut for yourself the two stone tablets. You understand what's happened here in the book of Exodus. He was given the Ten Commandments. He began to go down to give the Ten Commandments to the children of Israel. He realized that they had created a golden calf. He smashed the commandments out of his anger. Uh, He ended up grinding up the calf and the gold and putting it in the water and making them drink the water and all this other stuff because he was pretty upset with what they'd done. And so when he comes back to God, instead of God saying, you broke the first one, there's a no return policy on this, you're out of luck. God in his graciousness says to him, cut two tablets. So we understand that there's a God of second chances. It's important for us to remember as well in our own life. And that if you do something that's sinful, and I don't want you to, but if you do something that's sinful, God is a God of second chances. When we fall on our knees and repent and we ask God to forgive us, God gives second chances. There's another thing to understand here is that even the sins of mankind cannot thwart the purposes of God. God intended to be a covenant God to the children of Israel. And even though the children of Israel continually sinned in their actions, God in his sovereignty would not let the train be derailed. He was the divine conductor orchestrating a safe departure and a safe arrival of his train on his tracks as though he wanted it to happen. Exodus chapter 24, uh, 34, we're gonna begin reading in verse five. Would you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? says here in verse five, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, and you see here the quotation mark, some have called this the sermon of God on his own name. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. 
And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Dear Lord, as we look at your word today, I just pray that we might catch a glimpse of your glory, of who you are, and Lord, that it might cause us too to fall down in our hearts and to worship you, to ask for your presence to continually be with us and to ask for repentance of our own sins. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And you may be seated. This particular text, which some have called God's sermon on himself, shows up all throughout Scripture. You'll find this text referenced in many locations, just a few of those, Psalm 145, 8 through 13, Psalm 86, 5, Psalm 103, 8 and 12, 2 Chronicles 30, 8 and 9. We'll find it, and I'll mention this one later in particular, Joel 2.13, Nehemiah 9.17 and 31, and Jonah 4.2. And I'm sure there are other locations where parts of this particular passage are mentioned all throughout. As you look at that loving kindness, that hesed love, that covenant love, that pursuing love that is referenced in this passage, the context that's provided here in Exodus 34 gives us that understanding as we move forward all throughout the Old Testament and even into the New So I ask you the question again after reading that text, do you know who God is? We describe God as Father, and I can't help but think that in a generation particularly like we have right now, in this day and time when we describe God as Father, that that has different meanings to different people. How many of you would say that you had a dad that was a great dad, and you would raise your hand, and cameras stay up on here on me, but you would raise your hand, you would say, I had a great dad. That's the majority of you. How many of you would raise your hand and you would say, you know what, my dad really wasn't a good example of God the Father? How many of you would be willing to raise your hand and say, that's me? Few of you. You're not alone. And you're certainly not alone in this generation. And as we describe God as Father, the first thing that comes to some people's minds is a person that abused me. It's a person that cheated on my mom. It's a person that deserted our family. It's a person that lied. It's a person that was self-centered. It was a person that looked out only for their own interest. It was a person that was arrogant. It was a person that was manipulative, a person that was abusive, a person that was absent, a person that was angry, a person that was harsh. And when you think God the Father What you should not do is take those sinful characteristics of mankind and place those characteristics then upon God the Father as though God the Father is a capricious, harsh, absent, vindictive God because the characteristics of God the Father demonstrate a loving Father who is steadfast in His presence and in His love and His loving kindness. And so if you had a father that was not an ideal father, look to these characteristics for two reasons. Number one, look to these characteristics as you think about your own life and the potential of you yourself one day being a father, what type father should you begin preparing to be right now? You should prepare to be the type father that is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love, reliable, dependable, trustworthy, forgiving iniquity, transgressions, and sin. 
That's who you need to prepare to be because we are called to reflect God's glory and God's image in our own life as we live out life as good husbands or a good wife or a good father or a good mother or just a good worker in a company as we're reflecting God's image as we're going out sharing the gospel wherever God has put us. We need to make these characteristics part of our characteristics as we live life to reflect the glory of God. Some of us have been in churches that have been great churches, loving churches that have demonstrated that balance of God's love and God's holiness. And some of you have been in churches where you begin to view God the Father as a God who is a legalistic God, a harsh God, an unforgiving God, a God where you make one mistake and they completely smite you off the face of the earth. If you do something wrong, you're done and you're out. That is not the picture of the church as the way it should be. God the Father is a long-suffering God to those who are willing to repent. He is a forgiving God. And we as the church, as we go out and as some of you help plant churches, as some of you serve in churches, as your producers and not just consumers, we need to make sure we demonstrate the love and the compassion that God demonstrates here as characteristic of His very nature. Some of you have personal issues. You have things that have developed in your past and you struggle with issues like cutting, You struggle with image problems. You look in the mirror and you don't ever think you're good enough. You're trying to find acceptance or pleasure in somebody else and and somebody to say they love you just for you. And you're always beating yourself up and you're always too hard on yourself. Here is a God that is described as a God who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger. It is a God that created you in his image. It is a God that loves you because you are you and you are his special creation. And he has a mission and a purpose for each one of you. And not a single one of you should live your life thinking you can't do anything for God. God wants to do amazing things through you wherever he sends you. God loves you just like you are. You can't add anything to make him love you more. You can't do anything to make him love you more. Do you realize that this is the God we serve and worship here today? And then there are some of you in the room. You don't need to focus on God's love. You need to focus on God's wrath. I find this in my own life at times too when presume upon the grace of God and you have sin in your life and you don't take that sin seriously enough And some of you really just don't understand that God is a just God, that God is a God that sees all and knows all, and that God knows what you're up to, and he knows what you're doing, and he understands, and one day he is going to visit judgment upon you. You will reap what you sow. You love your sin far more than you love God. And you need to focus today in particular on the holiness of God. On the fact that God is a God who it says here will by no means clear the guilty, but he visits the iniquity of the fathers and the children on the children's children to the third generation. We understand that when a dad has a gambling problem, it affects the family. When a dad has a drinking problem, it affects the family. When there is a divorce, it affects the family. When there are other issues, it has consequences on the children and the children's children. We understand that those consequences are there. Now, I'll talk about that again a little bit more later on. But today, perhaps you're sitting here and you need to focus on the holiness of God and repent of your own sin as you look at what the word says about God and his character. Let's look at each word here. The Lord, the Lord, he repeats it twice. He repeats it to, to emphasize who he is. And, and I don't have time to spend too much time there because that moves us into a separate discussion. But on the characteristics of God, he says, a, a God who is merciful. 
I've got a slide here for you with some of the different words on these just to help us walk through them. A merciful in the ESV or the New King James, if you're reading out of the NIV or the NSB, it's compassionate. God is a God that demonstrates mercy and compassion like a mother does for a child in her womb or like a father for an infant. If you have ever seen a mother or a father with a newborn baby and you understand how they treat that newborn baby, you understand that they give them compassion and mercy and they allow newborn babies to get away with things that they would never allow grown adults to get away with and they love them and they smile and just about everything is cute when it's a newborn baby. There's a mercy and there's a compassion that is given in these instances. It's God recognizing that he is the creator and we are the created and he remembers that we are made of flesh and that we fade easily and God extends mercy to us on the basis of his original love and his nature and who he is as a creator God. It also says here that God is gracious. Thank God for his grace. You think about what God's grace means in your life. We often define grace, especially in the New Testament, at at God's riches, at Christ's expense, the graciousness that God has bestowed on us and that while we were yet sinners, he died for us and that we are given a free gift that we do not deserve. Can you think about the grace of God? It's in his very nature to be gracious. Grace gives gifts freely that are completely undeserved. God is slow to anger. This one's particularly interesting because it's a Hebrew idiom. And in this Hebrew idiom, it means to burn with anger, which literally means nostrils burn. Anybody ever eaten a hot pepper and had their nostrils burn so that they felt like fire was going to come out of their nostrils? Anybody out there done that? The idiom here is that you have nostril burn. And what it's saying when it's saying he's slow to anger is it's literally saying there's a lengthening of the nostrils so that the fire doesn't come out. It's literally saying that God is slow to anger so that the burn out of the nostrils will not come out as a fire that would consume us. And so think about us and how we should be so thankful that God is slow to anger. Slow to anger, not visiting his wrath upon us, but his anger cools before dealing with people's sins. You think about the key text for this and understanding it is the delay and punishment that comes from the golden calf and the rebellion of the children of Israel against God in the very context where we are this morning? Aren't you thankful that God is slow to anger, that he is long-suffering? In the ESV, it talks about slow to anger, long-suffering in the New King James, and endlessly patient in the message. Endlessly patient. Aren't you glad that you have a God that deals with our sin and our fallenness and our nature as it stands, that God is endlessly patient? to work with us, to continue to draw us, to continue to pursue us because it's in his very nature to be slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You'll see in verse seven there as well, it says keeping steadfast love. And so here we notice the crux of this entire passage is built upon this steadfast love, this hesed, this loving kindness, this covenant love, this love that is a pursuing love that God demonstrates towards us. And so here we understand verse six, it's abounding in steadfast love. You see all the different words there, abounding in goodness, abounding in loving kindness, rich in faithful love, abounding in love. What the text here is trying to say us is that God has an unrelenting love, a pursuing love. 
Psalm 136 says this over and over and over again, that God's steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. And it drives home the point to us that we as a sinful people in rebellion against the king that created us, that it's God's love and his ultimate pursuit of us that continues to strive after us, to bring us in, to love us, to show us his covenant loving kindness. Are you thankful for God's love? Are you thankful as part of his nature and in faithfulness? The New King James, the NASB, and the Holman Christian Standard would characterize this as truth. It intends to say to us here that God is completely reliable and trustworthy. So perhaps at some point in time in your past, you have put your faith or your trust or your respect into a human pastor who has fallen, to a youth pastor who has done something wrong, to a spouse or to a father or to a mother, and things have gone south. And you take that and you look and you say, God, why? And we understand it's the sinfulness that's in this world, but don't take those characteristics and place them upon God because God here declaring who he is has told us that he is a completely reliable, trustworthy God. He is faithful. He is truth. He defines those words. Those words do not define him. Without God, we have no concept of those understandings. It is God that defines the very meanings of these words. And God is a God that is faithful and a God that is true. So if you have somebody precious in your life that has walked out on you or that has has done something to hurt you or has not been there and been reliable for you, understand that the God that loves you is a God that is faithful by character. It's in his very nature to be trustworthy and to be faithful. So as you're going through hard times, where do we turn? We plead to a God that is faithful, to a God that is completely trustworthy. That is the God that we are here to worship right now. God will be there for us. Think about the comfort this gives you. No matter how many times you switch your degree, God's still faithful. No matter whether you graduate and have your plans changed right upon graduation, God is still trustworthy. He's not a God that says, you didn't make the grade, I'm done with you. He's not a God that says, you're going through a trial, I'm going to push you aside. He is a God that if you serve him with your entire life, you lean on him. He is a faithful and trustworthy God. Verse 7, it says, keeping his steadfast love for thousands. And this is better translated perhaps as for a thousand generations. And you would understand that a thousand generations would even in that sense be an idiom to say forever. It basically is saying here in the text that God is a is, is a God abounding in this steadfast love and faithfulness. You can trust him. He's going to be there keeping this steadfast love forever. There is no human you will ever encounter that will keep steadfast love to you in the way that God will. There is no person that you can ever win over that will demonstrate the love to you that God will. All of us in our fallen nature will fail one another. We will at times demonstrate anger. We will demonstrate our own sinfulness. We will not be there. We will have selfish desires and concerns. But God in his perfect love will demonstrate a steadfast love forever, for a thousand generations. This is also translated in the New King James as keeping mercy for thousands. And the NASB is keeping loving kindness for thousands, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations in the Holman Christian Standard. 
Do you understand what this means? This hesed, this loving kindness, this covenant love that goes one way, it means this. It means when we love our sin more than we love God, when we say to God, God, I don't really want you right now. I wanna do what I wanna do. I wanna put something else on the throne of my heart. When we are a fickle people, when we are a sinful people, when we are a people in rebellion against God, God is a steadfast covenant loving God who's still there. And when we repent, God's still there. And when we stray, God's still there. And when we come back to him, God is still there. How thankful should we be that we have a God who is loving for a thousand generations? It says next that God forgiving sin here, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. What does it mean that God is forgiving iniquity, transgressions and sins? Oh, we should be thankful for this. We have three different words here. It's telling us that God's gonna forgive in a comprehensive way, in a comprehensive manner. And to, to clear this, it's talking about basically lifting the burden and carrying it away. He lifts that burden. He has carried it away. It has been nailed to the cross. It has been defeated by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He has overcome this. Our sins can be forgiven if we repent and put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And it also means here that he, he forgives that twisting of his will. When we take those good things that God has given us and we sinfully twist them so that we bend his will into a sinful action, when we turn the desire for food into a desire for gluttony, when we turn that desire for companionship with another or to have love with another into a lustful, sinful action, when we twist his will, when we take that and turn it into something evil, God forgives. When we break that covenant relationship, God forgives. When we miss the mark, when we don't hit the target, God forgives. Says he forgives iniquity and transgressions and sin. But then we move to the next characteristic. And in Exodus chapter 22, we understand this is actually first. And it's the loving characteristics that are second. Here, the loving characteristics are listed first. And we move to his holiness next. As it says, he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. How do we deal with this? How do we deal with the fact that it says God by no means clears the guilty? In the Holman Christian standard and others, it means by no means leaves the guilty unpunished. In the message, it characterizes it. And the message is not a translation, it's a paraphrase. And so it's, it's just trying to get the context out and the idea out. It says he doesn't ignore sin. Do you understand that this morning too? That if you're in this room and you are in self-admitted rebellion against God because of things that you are doing, that God doesn't ignore your sin. He knows your sin. He says that you will reap what you have sown and that there is a consequence to the actions that take place. You see this all throughout the scriptures. How do we put these two together? Well, there's the problem of the God who forgives and the God who does not forgive. So let's look at how the rest of the Old Testament has interpreted this. Joel 2, 12 and 13, I have for you on the screen. It says, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord for he is gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Joel quotes Exodus to make the point that if you repent, if you humble yourself, if you return to the Lord, the Lord will not bring disaster upon you. Another text from the Old Testament is Jonah 3, 12 through 4, 2. It says, when God saw what they did and how they had turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Well, there's a sermon that could be preached from that and that alone, but we don't have time for that today. And 
he continues in verse two and says, and he prayed to the Lord and said, oh Lord, is not this what I said to you when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God, a merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Here we see Jonah citing Exodus 34 to say, if you repent, if you humble yourself, God will forgive you because God is a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger. We also recognize in this particular text that sin has consequences because he visits them upon the other generations. So how do we balance this? I think here's how we balance this. This is is the best I've come to in my study of this text. This text is saying to us, if we are humble and repentant before God, God is gracious and merciful and will forgive us. If we are unrepentant and we continue in rebellion against God, God will by no means let that go by. You will reap what you have sown. I think this text also indicates to us that even though God is slow to anger and merciful and forgiving, that there are consequences to our actions. And we see that in the life of David and we see that in others. And so this text leans us to understand God's mercy and God's love, but it also causes us to have a proper reaction towards God. And that proper reaction towards God can be seen as we look at verse eight. And when we look at verse eight, it says, Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us for it is a stiff necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take for us your inheritance. I have four quick things of application to look at what Moses did and then looking at what Moses did to look at application for our own life. Here to look at what Moses did in the proper response. First, we see he humbled himself. Moses quickly bowed his head. He humbled himself before God, who was a compassionate and a just God, the perfect God who had just described himself to him. And in verse eight, Moses quickly bowed his head. Have you humbled yourself before God? Moses worshiped is the second aspect of what happens here in verse eight. And then in verse nine, we see that Moses made a request and the request was to let the Lord go in the midst of us. Moses requested the presence of the Lord. And then Moses repented on behalf of all of his people. It's a stiff-necked people. He said, pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Here we see Moses' four responses, and I would say to you, they should be our four responses to encountering the character and the nature of God. We should humble ourselves before God. Have you humbled yourself before God? Are you still going around in a stiff-necked attitude of rebellion and life saying, I will do what I want to do. I don't have to submit to God. Have you humbled yourself before him? Have you worshiped God? Do you have a desire to have God's presence in your life? You know, this one I think is important. I think all of these are important, but I think this one particularly struck me as I was studying this passage in that all of the things that Moses could have asked for, Moses said, God, I want your presence in my life. He doesn't say, I want the promised land. He doesn't say, I want riches. He doesn't say, I want fame. He doesn't say, I want that job or I want that degree or I want the pinnacle of all of these achievements. He basically says, God, go with us. God, be with us. God, be my God. God, have your presence among us. It's what you want in life more than anything else, the presence of the Lord to be in your life, for you to walk with the Lord, for you to do the Lord's bidding wherever you go, for you to represent the character of the Lord, the nature of the Lord to reflect his image? Is that what you want in your life? Is that your sole ambition is to live a life soul sold out for God that wherever you go, you reflect his character and his nature and you walk with him in a relationship so that it could be said, the Lord is with you. That should be our desire. Whether we fail miserably at certain tasks 
or whether we excel at certain tasks, our desire should be that the desire of of God's presence is with us. And then it says here that he repented and we too should repent to God. Understanding here that this semester, without it being planned, when we looked at Psalm 19, you respond with a humble repentance. When you look at Psalm 139, you respond with a humble repentance. When you look at Exodus 34, you respond in a humble repentance. And I would say to you all that when we encounter God, we respond with a humble repentance. We do not respond with an arrogance over our pride, over our knowledge, over our abilities, over our looks. We do not respond in any way in prideful arrogance to God Almighty. But when we encounter the one true God, we fall down in humility and we respond in humble repentance before God Almighty. Is that where you are this morning? You know, we are not the first Christians to hold to these things as we talk about what we believe. For 2,000 years and longer, Christians have been professing that this I believe, this we believe. The Apostles' Creed is up on the screen for you. I want to ask you to stand and read this together with me. This is a confession that Christians have confessed for a long time. It says, and read with me, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.